Good to see you again, sir. Good to be here. Thank thanks, you. Thanks for coming back, man. I really appreciate it. This is a perfect time to talk to someone like you about uh, our food. Um, we're in a very strange crisis now, and you just keep hearing time and time again in the news uh, how much ranchers and farmers and people are really suffering right now and how much folks who don't have anything to do with that are now forcing, they're, they're being forced to understand the, the importance of the food supply chain and ranchers and farmers and all the stuff that we've taken for granted for quite a long time now. Well, they sure have. And what's interesting about it is the juxtaposition between the, I'll just call it the industrial, the, the more, you know, uh, a commercial industrial food sector versus the sector that I'm in, which is a, um, a, a local centric, you know, uh, uh, direct direct sale branded product, you know, directly from the farm. Uh, the pandemic is the best marketing strategy we've ever seen. We're having <laughs> we're having the best season we've ever had, and um, and 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 the same thing was with farmers around the country. As I talked to them, uh, everyone that's like us that 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 did not go into the supermarket system, basically, mm -hmm. that that's selling in their community and their in their region regionally, uh, directly off the farm having the best best year we've ever had it is the it is the um it's the industrial uh mega system that's cracking and so for the first time we're hearing talk of well maybe maybe we need to add uh, resiliency to efficiency mm. <laughs> and so uh so yeah, the, the the system that's cracking. There's plenty of food. I mean, there's plenty of food on farms being produced. Uh, but of course, as you know, milk is being dumped, pigs are being euthanized. The problem is not at the farm level. The problem is in the chain of custody between the farmer and the consumer, and primarily in the in the uh, the large scale processing uh, situation. Yeah, these large meat. Processing places uh, they've they've been hit hard by the they, coronavirus. They have been. I mean, if you think about it right now, Joe, probably uh, in in the um, in the United States, the only places right now where every day thousands of people um, come together in crowded conditions are these big meat processing plants. I mean, the offices are closed, the theaters are closed, the mm. convention centers are closed. Uh, and so the only place where people are coming shoulder to shoulder, thousands every day, are in these mega processing facilities. Uh, Teresa and I, my wife, actually co-own a very small um, abattoir, a slaughterhouse, a community slaughterhouse. We have 20 employees. And... Um, and the, the differences, the difference in the vulnerability, in, in the exposure and risk factor between our little 20-person facility where we do, you know, maybe um, 50 to 70 beeves a week, 100 hogs, versus these mega plants that have, you know. When you say beeves? Beeves. What, like what beef. Beef. Oh, um, beefs. Yeah. Well, oh, I thought you the, said beeves. Well, there's no like, such word it? as there's no such word as beefs. It's beeves. B e e v e s. Oh, okay. That is what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Beeves. Beeves. Um, Have you yeah, heard so, that so, before, Jamie? No. Okay. So, so the plural of beef is not beefs. It's beeves. Oh, All right. interesting. All right. Uh, I always thought that beef was just the meat. Yeah. I never yeah. thought. I, I would have assumed you would say cows. Well, uh, as a farmer, 
cows are are females who have had calves. Right. So it's a very as opposed oh, to steers, steers who right. would be cat or bulls, which would be intact males. Mm-hmm. Steers right. non intact. So as a farmer, all this nomenclature is real. You know, yes. it's uh, normal for you. It, it's and... real, like, like a theologian teases out. You know, Presbyterians and Methodists, and and uh, we just say, well, they're Protestants. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so so. Um, so you so know, you have I, a I, small I, I, place. I, we we do we do. It's a it's a small uh, facility, and um, and you know it, it's been in business for I don't know what sixty years or so. Uh, we've only co-owned it now for a little bit less than ten years. But but the difference, because we do stuff by hand, workstations. Um, you know these stainless steel work tables are what uh, you know six seven eight feet wide, three feet to four feet deep, and and each one is a workstation, and you've got three guys out on the kill floor. You got two guys out in the you know the cryovac room. You've got four guys in the boning room. You got a guy over here running the uh, sausage stuffer or the you know the uh, grinder. It's inherently small scale, spread out, completely different environment than when you're having you know three thousand people in a cool, damp environment uh, from, and I don't want to get into a rabbit trail discussion, but but frankly, in these great, great big plants, most of the workers are generally not Americans. They're, they're, they're coming from other countries looking for you know, the American dream. And so they're living in crowded conditions because they're trying to save every penny to send home to get, you know, uncle and aunt and other family members here from Ethiopia, Somalia, you know, wherever it is. And and so they're 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 living in a house that we would live for in a house. They're living, you know, twenty, and they're eating poorly. They're in a they're in a stressful. They're 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 often separated from their family. There's just a lot of stress mm-hmm. in, in their lives, and um, and and so then you throw these big uh, processing facilities. They're not they're not eating well, and. It's it's just a, it's just an incubator. I mean, if you wanted to create an incubator for a virus, there wouldn't be a better place. Whereas small facilities are inherently the workers are spread out. They tend to come from the community. Uh, they tend to be career craft people rather than just you know make this cut, Mac. <laughs> you know, uh, the average poultry processing plant in our area they say that every job can be learned in twenty minutes. Mm. So. Uh, whereas at our plant, we we cross you know we we cross do we you know we cut meat a while and then we go pack a while and you're on the cut floor and then you're you know you're 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 doing different things so it's a real different environment and so these big plants um, are very vulnerable and that's why the recalls come from there the you know the microbials uh, come from there I mean an, an average um, an average fast food hamburger has pieces of 600 animals in it. Wow. When you get a hamburger from us, uh, it's one animal, you know. So the, 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 just, just the sheer whatever, mixing, the, mm. you know. So, you know, for sure, um, we don't know a lot about this virus. For, I mean, we're learning every day. And, you know, you got to kind of take a little bit of a grain of salt, too. Um, but one of the things we're certainly learning is that there's an advantage that there is a density factor, a people density factor, mm-hmm. like an urban, rural, uh, you know, uh, spreading out. The whole social distancing spreading out thing is 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 uh, 
seems to be a valuable thing. And so if we take that into the food system, wouldn't it be an amazing thing if instead of having 150 to 200 mega processing facilities doing 98% of the nation's meat, um, if instead that were 200,000 small-scale, community-based, ecologically nested facilities, you know, all around the countryside, that would be an incredibly uh, resilient system. It sounds like a much better system. Like as you you were talking before about your relationship with your customers, it's a direct to farm. I mean, that's really ideal, right? Cut out the middle person. There's you cut out the confusion of whether or not the animals are ethically raised or ethically slaughtered. Like what are the conditions they're living under? I mean, your uh, polyface farms, right? So yeah. That that mm-hmm. whole video that you have that ex- that I've seen that explains mm-hmm. the way you do regenerative farming and you let these animals live the way these animals are supposed to live. They're not confined to cages. They're roaming around. They're eating natural foods. And you get a better product, you get a healthier product, and you get a better relationship with both the animals and the people that you sell this, this food to. Well, sure. And and ultimately, what we're looking for is a habitat that allows, uh, you know, each life form, whether it's a plant or an animal, to fully express. We call it, you know, expressing the pigness of the pig or the right. chickenness of the chicken. You could say the tomatoness of the tomato. You know, uh, and and creating a habitat that allows that life um, that life to express its, you know, its its uh, what phenotypical and physiological distinctiveness. Um, in humans, we would call this self-affirmation, you know, the, mm. the, the, the Tomness of Tom, the Jonas of Joe, right? Uh, it, it's that aff- affirmation. And, um, and, and one of the things that we're seeing as a result, as we move into the kind of the social consequences of this whole uh, uh, pandemic is a um, – is, well, there's there's a new phrase called um, the Screen New Deal, where everything is going to AI. We're gonna, you know, we're we're dehumanizing, and so at a very time when people need to be personally affirmed, they're being denied their, you know, their 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 social humanity uh, yeah. element. I mean, you can't even see whether a person's smiling or frowning. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the worst part about this. Other than the the tragedies, the, the yes. worst part about this yeah. is that. Like people aren't getting hugged, people are scared to right. shake hands. Everyone's separated from everybody. It's just very strange. It is. It is. Uh, and and uh, you know our 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 personal energy that we get from each other. Uh, you know, I've, like you, I'm sure I've done numerous Zoom things lo- lately, more you know, than ever. Zoom conferences, Zoom phone conferences, different things, and. Uh, there's just not the energy. There's just there's just no. not. You just don't get the energy that you get when you're right in front of each other. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I feel the same way about podcasts. And you know, Jamie, I screwed up. I forgot the nurse. Yeah, we started early. Yeah, you want to? Yeah. we can pause and stop. Can we? I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay, we can, yeah. we're gonna we, we want to give you a coronavirus test. Okay, you down with that? That's fine. All right, we'll pause right here. Well, okay, so we uh, did you a little test and uh, found out you have not had it. He didn't fight it off. Bummer. But the doctor did explain to us that there's primary immune system and there's secondary immune system. Your primary immune system, most likely, if you've been in contact with it, and his has, you know, his, he's, uh, the doctor has been around many, many people that have had it, 
But uh, your primary immune system, if you're healthy, he was saying fights it off. Your secondary immune system is if you have had it, the infection and your body has developed those antibodies, it's your second line of defense. So most likely your first line of defense, since you have been in contact with people that have had it, your first line of defense beat it. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I, I, I work on it. Yeah, we were talking about that, and I said, please save this because it's so crazy. You you drink. Explain what you do. Yeah, so, to strengthen your yeah, immune so, system. So you know, in this whole thing, like you, I've been I've been screaming. Let's talk about the immune system. You yes. know, so so um, I, I literally I literally have not been um, sick a day basically in twenty years. I mean, not the flu, not a cold, not I mean, just nothing. Um, and and I'm 60, 63. So um, I'm not saying that arrogantly or proudly. I'm saying it gratefully that uh, that I th I think there are things that we can do to really build up our immune system. One of the things that I do that kind of makes all my staff laugh is that I routinely bend down with the cows and drink the drink the water out of the cow tank. Um, I don't drink it when it's pond water, although I've drunk pond water. But when it's you know <laughs> when, when it's when it's like well water, you know when it's fairly clean water. I get down, of course, you know, the cows are dripping saliva and stuff in it, you know, and I just drink right out of it just like a cow. And I, I'm serious, you know, I believe that that, that what it, it, it builds your microbiome. You know, I want all those bugs, all that diversity. We, we live in the most amazing microscopic soup. I mean, it's it's just it, it's a soup. If you could take an electromagnetic photograph of, of, of the air, um, of, of where we are, I mean, the very, I mean, our skin is exuding stuff. Um, you know, our our noses, our, our our clothes, everything. We're it would it would look like a uh, it would look like the um, the cloud over pig pen in the Peanuts comic strip. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's literally what we're living in, and. And and uh, all of this life, all of you know, viruses, bacteria, um, um, microorganisms, all of this life is is literally having uh, a, a conversation. Hey, uh, you know, I'd like to hook onto you in a symbiotic relationship. Hey, man, I'm a parasite. I'm gonna take you down. You know, <laughs> it, it's like a, it's like a drama. It's like a play mm. that's going on inside of us, outside of us. And the thought that we can somehow, whatever you know, isolate ourselves and 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 extract ourselves from this from this magnificent life conversation that's going on in us, on our skin, our clothes, our hair, our eyes, um, is is it's just silly, and and it, and it's part of how our immune system works. Right. You know, our immune system actually, I need your bugs. My immune system needs your bugs. Your immune system needs my bugs. Um, and and so uh, now, you know, does that mean we all run into the nursing homes, you know, and, and take vulnerable? No, no, no. You, you, there, I mean, there are there are certainly people that are very vulnerable. So we want to be careful there. All right. I, I, I get that. But for the for the rest of us that are generally healthy um going about our daily stuff i mean goodness worry worry affects your uh, cortisol limits almost more than anything worry you know i got on a plane yesterday to come out here and um 
Thanks for the nice business class ticket, by the way. You're welcome. And, 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 and the lady sitting in front of me, uh, so we're in business class. I'm sitting, um, so there's four, there's an aisle, and there's two seats on either side. And so I sit down. There's nobody next to me. I'm in next to the window. A lady in front of me is on the aisle, so she's a little bit diagonal for me in front. A guy sits across from her on the aisle, on the opposing aisle, and she asks him to move over to the window. And and I'm just watching this play out. Of course, I'm trying to, you know, keep my glasses from fogging up with my mask in my face, you know. And I'm thinking, that she's worried. She's fearful. What have we done to ourselves as a culture that every single person we come in contact with is a might be my killer you know i mean that's a that's a horrible and so what does that do to our cortisol boom you know and and suddenly our immune system is whatever compromised because we're living in this in this fear all the time i think one of the things that you said though when you said most of us that are healthy i think that's not really true i think most of us are not healthy and I think that's one of the things we're finding out from this crisis. Yes. Is that when you talk about protecting vulnerable people, there's a lot of us that are vulnerable. Maybe not you or me, right. but a, a large number of people that are overweight, that eat poor food, and that don't take care of themselves. Yes. And those people are particularly vulnerable. And so they're right to be afraid, but they're wrong to think that this, the only way to solve this is to make sure that you stay away from everybody. The way to solve this is to stop eating shit and become a healthy person. It's while you're alive, right. there's always a, there's a moment, a <laughs> chance to be healthier while you're alive. If you're alive and you're not terribly ill and dying, you could start drinking water, stop drinking soda, stop eating chips, start eating fruits and vegetables, start eating lean meats, healthy foods, not even lean meats. Eat, eat, eat a good ribeye steak. Pa pastured, yeah. pastured meats. Yeah. Pastured meats. Eat food. But, yeah, you're right. Well, uh, you know, whenever I watch a newscast and watch the, you know, the daily, uh, like, you know, coronavirus briefing mm -hmm. from the White House, right? And you've got all these experts standing around, and 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 everybody's standing there waiting for this magic um, vaccine. Right. And of course, you know, the CDC gets uh, four point six billion dollars a year selling vaccines. They have whatever twenty uh, patent vaccines, um, and and so really, the CDC is is a very vested interest in trying to develop a vaccine. There, there's there's a lot of money in sickness. Now, there's a lot of money in sickness. And so, so you know, we didn't get this, this uh, coronavirus because of a lack of vaccine. We got this coronavirus because something in this, in this beautiful life bath that I described was out of whack. Uh, that's that now, you know, we can, we can start discussing where it possibly came from. I think right now that's conjecture. Uh, I mean, I think we, we do know that it came out of Wuhan, but but you know, just right. how, we, we, I mean, we're not sure. But, but the fact is that there was an imbalance in life. And just like in, your, in, in our lifetime, Joe, we've learned uh, to say words that when I was a child, did you ever hear the term, you know, salmonella, E. coli, campylobacter, um, uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, uh, uh, food allergy even. I mean, how many kids in elementary school did you know that had food allergies? None. None. Yeah. Nobody. You, you, you have a birthday party. 
mom isn't having to email. We didn't even have an email back then. But mom isn't calling all the other mothers saying, well, now, what can your child eat? And what can what can your little Mary have? And, you know, oh, pe- oh, we better not have any peanuts. And I mean, that didn't exist. And what's happened, the way I look at this is that that humanity, that we as collective humanity, we've essentially taken this this beautiful, benevolent earth, this benevolent uh, uh, sustainer, partner, mentor, uh, uh, abundant provider, and taken it, taken this partner to the boxing ring. Mm. And instead of caressing this abundant, wonderful partner provider, we've pummeled it and pummeled it. We've 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 pulled the water out of its aquifers. We've we've destroyed its soil. We've we've put a dead zone the size of the uh, Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico. We've uh, we've we've used antibiotics in animals and made MRSA and C diff and superbugs and 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 so nature has been gently gently begging for for relief as we've essentially you know put our foot uh, put our foot on her neck right mm. a- and she and she's saying uh, e coli uh, you know salmonella uh, you know bovine spongiform encephalopathy right um and <clears throat> including diabetes and you know all these other things and we simply don't listen and continue to pummel and eventually eventually when our our benevolent nest, um, whatever, you know, is KO'd, we find out, oops, <laughs> maybe we should have paid attention. Yeah, and I think a, a real parallel is when you were talking about the, these large-scale meat processing plants are a, a perfect sort of petri dish for viruses to grow, so are factory farms. So are these farms where you're stuffing pigs next to each other. You're doing all this unnatural stuff, right? It's unnatural for people to be stuffed into a warehouse right next to each other, shoulder to shoulder, working all day. It's unnatural for them to be stuffed into these homes shoulder to shoulder with bad food and and all the things that you would need to keep your body healthy and strong. The same can be said about these factory farm situations. One thing that I, I find so attractive about the way you run your farm is that there's no weirdness in watching these animals during the day. They, they seem like animals just doing normal stuff. If you see a chicken wandering around just pecking at the grass, looks normal. See a chicken in a cage getting fed out of, of a little cup or something, it, does, it looks all kinds of fucked up, right? It doesn't feel right. No, right? no. Right? That's, that's why we, you know, we, um, we have the phrase, uh, respecting the pigness of the pig yes. and the chickenness of the chicken. And we know that these diseases are all coming from these places. I mean, there's a, a ton of agricultural diseases, you know, that are based from these factory yes. farm situations where these animals live in these really horrific conditions and then the bacteria jump and look i mean they're 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 eat, look if you ate in your toilet every you know, would you like <laughs> to eat point. your toilet every day right exactly. uh, that's that's how they eat you're they're breathing in their fecal particulate matter which is um you know uh, uh putting lesions in their uh tender respiratory membranes uh, uh making making uh, lesions there uh, and and so when you have those kinds of conditions, and, and they're not getting exercise, they're not getting fresh air, and so uh, I mean the the uh, they're not getting salad, they're not getting any vitamin D from the sunshine, mm. uh, and so what happens is you get an extremely concentrated host 
host facility for pathogenicity. Mm. Th- that's what happens. You get a very concentrated host facility because there's always a host. They're close to each other. The pathogen doesn't have to say, wow, boy, I, I wonder if I can make it that, you know, that half mile over to another. No, no they're, you know, they're always right there. And so you're right. It, it's like it's like an incubator. And so, you know, if, if we wanted to sit down, look, if we wanted to sit down and say, Let's say we had a James Bond uh, conspiratist, you know, uh, and said, we're going to form a committee and uh, and make a pathogen friendly farm, (laughs) you know, the the old uh, James Bond nemesis. Right. And so we form a committee, say, how can we make a pathogen friendly farm? Well, we would have only one species. We'd crowd it up. We'd take out the oxygen, the the fresh air, the sunshine. We'd give it we'd give it a, a minimal, a minimalistic diet. What I've just described is modern, efficient industrial factory farming. You couldn't design a better system uh, uh, for for uh, conductivity of pathogenicity. Now, here's the big question: Is it possible to feed all of Los Angeles using your methods? Can you can you feed big urban areas sure. using these regenerative methods? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, so, so two things to realize is the the bottleneck in the food system right now, the reason the supermarket is low on meat, is not because there aren't animals in the field. It's because of the, pro- the processing. Is the bo- it's not the trucking. It's not the production. It's not even the, it's not even the store shelf. It's, it's the processing. So it's the processing that's the bottleneck. And so, uh, so, so my vision is that so, so, so we get the two questions. First of all, let's deal with the production. Uh, with the production, absolutely. If we if we spread out the production, if we if we did, for example, you know, uh, if we took all the confinement chicken houses and put those chickens on pasture, no problem. Okay, it doesn't take any more land to grow the feed for a chicken on pasture than it does in a confinement house. Don't you get a lot more loss though due to what, raptors and things along those lines? No. Coyotes. No, no. We we put it we put them in uh in little uh protected shelters. Uh then we move them every day across the pasture. Well, yeah, you you can get losses from from raptors, but we use guard geese. There are guard dogs, guard llamas. There's all sorts of guard animals. There's there's really cool, uh, and there's and there's a lot of uh, research being done to jam the radar of you know eagles and stuff. There, I mean, uh, really? Oh yeah, oh yeah. They jam the radar. I didn't even know they had radar. <laughs> well, that's figurative. Right. What uh, are they using when they when they, when an eagle? It's just not just their vision's insanely good, right? Yeah, it, eagles it, in it, particular. It, it really is. It really is. And so, for example, <clears throat> I know one guy. That's uh, he's it, it's not it's not ready to sell yet, but he claims to have had great success um, putting reflective uh, Coke can bottoms on like a traffic cone, hanging it out with his chickens, and that splays the sun rays all out and messes up the eyesight of the of the eagles and the hawks. They they can't zero in. Really? Yeah. In in fact, this was exactly um, one of the defensive measures the U.S. Navy used, and still uses for incoming missiles. That they 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 have a cannon that blows out pieces of um, aluminum foil, basically, and it, like a graffiti, aluminum foil graffiti out in the air, and it jams the whatever the you know the the honing devices of a of a missile. Mm. 
the, the hawks are the same way. What I'm getting at is that there there are we don't lose very much. We protect them uh, greatly. There are a lot of things that you can do to you know to mitigate that kind of of pressure. But but the fact is, the industry loses tons of birds too in a flood, in a heat wave, in a whatever, you know. And uh, and so the idea that these birds in this big confinement house are actually protected from malady is, is, simply, not, is simply not true. And then they're going to be much more of them are going to get sick. And, sure, yeah, sure, so they might, sure. They might have losses in that way. Sure, sure. So, so can we produce? Can we produce the food this way? Absolutely. Now, one of the things that it would require is many more people on farms. So, you know, I've thought a lot about. Um, obviously, as unemployment has skyrocketed through this, right now sitting here, it's hard for us to imagine what it'll take to bring, you know. To fill football stadiums again, to you know, to fill mm-hmm. Caribbean cruises, to fill theaters, um, you know, uh, music venues, you know, um, whatever boxing matches. I mean, it, it, right now it, it's hard to conceive what it'll take. People are so terrified; it's hard to appreciate how much of this is going to come back the hospitality industry and all that so 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 what's going to happen so so where are the jobs what are people going to do and and i would suggest that one of the things that that people can do is that we can have a lot of these smaller plants and we have a way more people actually growing food participating in food production personally is food going to be more expensive maybe so but you get to be healthy and we have a healthy planet, and what's that worth? And how, how much more do you think it would cost? For I mean, if you I mean, I just give a rough percentage, if you're thinking about food production right now, with the current situation, there's a lot of automation, right? A lot of these factory farms, they don't require too many people to be working sure, there. Sure, sure. You would require much more people. You'd have to manage these animals. You'd have to do it sort of along the lines of the yeah. way that you do. Yeah. How many more people do you think would be involved in a, a large-scale oh, well, farm? Uh, Lots, lots, lots of people. I, I don't have a, I don't have a number there, but I can tell you that um, that prices would, uh, you know, food prices might go up to what they were 30 years ago. And it also would it be fair to say that food prices might go to where they should be? Like a, a cheeseburger really shouldn't be 99 cents. No, no, a- absolutely. Uh, the, the as as you're very familiar with the argument of the externalized costs they don't they don't get captured what's what's the cost you know right now 50 percent of the cases of diarrhea in the u.s are caused by uh foodborne you know bacteria well what's a what's a case of diarrhea worth yeah i mean if we start if if you start (laughs) yeah that's good if you start putting dollars on these externalized costs you know uh, the the dead zone in the in the gulf of mexico the fact that we have you know, square, uh, hundreds of square miles that don't grow shrimp anymore, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's toxic from the runoff from the Mississippi, uh, from, from chemical farming. So there's, there's a lot of these externalized costs. And not only that, but if this actually became normal, uh, the, the, whatever, the new way, the new orthodoxy, uh, there would be definitely economies of scale that we don't have right now. Um, I mean, I'll just give you one example that probably nobody would think of. So we play, we pay workman's compensation at our farm. So how do you determine the exposure level, the risk factor of a poultry worker? 
I mean, think about if if you have a Tyson chicken farm and you hire a, 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 a an employee to be in the chicken house. Think about his workman's comp risk. I mean, there's fecal particulate all day long that he's breathing. Uh, you've got augers, chains, feed bins, electrical connections, dust. I mean, it's it's a very um, it's a high risk situation for us. A poultry worker goes out in the field and moves some moves some chickens in a field. There's no fecal particulate. There's no dust. There's no, uh, you know, uh, there's no augers. There's no, um, no whatever spinning fans, uh, vent shafts. You know, there's none of this. And so, so part of the cost, the reason that our chicken is more expensive than what's in the store, is not only externalized cost, but it is it is unrecognized, unrecognized savings that we offer that can't be captured in a square peg in a round hole. Mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah. The the overall big picture of health for you, health for the food, how much is that worth? Yeah. Right. That's interesting that we're not really taking into consideration these secondary costs that come about from doing it the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. We're not. We're not. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of those uh, you you can much of much of our increased cost has nothing to do with actual production cost. It's it's the non-scalable regulatory overheads, uh, and, and this and this of course is why we don't have more community small-scale abattoirs around the country. Uh, is not because there's not a demand for them. It's because the 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 paperwork the HACCP plans, hazardous analysis, critical control point plans, and the paperwork to be able to launch a business like this require the – are so high that the, the both time and money are so high that it's very difficult to launch a small business, mm. you know, because you can't spread the overhead uh, of capitalization over – Is there a solution for that? Is it – well, uh, there, there, there are a couple solutions. Uh, certainly, one one that's um, that's being championed right now by Congressman Thomas Massey called the Prime Act. He's had it in for five years, and uh, amazingly, it's kind of just floundered for five years. All of a sudden, in the last two months, he's got eighteen new co-sponsors mm. because of this. And what the Prime Act would do, it would allow it would allow uninspected, custom processed meat in state. To be sold by the piece. That's not legal right now. Right now, the only way that you can sell a T-bone, if you want to buy a T-bone steak for me, the only way for you to get it is for me to go to a federal inspected slaughterhouse, get the animal processed, packaged under inspection, and put in for you. Custom houses are where if you want to buy a half a beef, a quarter beef, all right, and it goes in with your name on that quarter and they're custom processing it for me, yeah, then, you know, then I can buy it. And what, what Congressman Massey is saying with the Prime Act is, why should we discriminate and only allow people to tap into the lower cost and lower, lower uh, uh, overheads of the custom processing facility to only those people who can afford to buy a quarter of beef at a time? That's, that's very poverty discriminatory. Let's open that up. 
so that people can buy it by the piece. We're not going to ship it interstate. We're not going to sell it at Walmart. Okay, there's, but if you and I as neighbors <laughs> want to do business together as, and I'm using a powerful phrasing here, as consenting adults, if we want to exercise freedom of joy uh, of choice and participate in a consensual relationship of commerce, why should that be a bureaucrat's uh, uh, business between, you know, between two consenting neighbors? Right. So what you're saying is is long, but is the the regulatory process in place to make sure that people are using the proper sanitation methods, making sure that the animals are healthy, making sure that all these things are in place so that unscrupulous characters don't take advantage of the system and then screw over the consumer and then the consumer gets sick. Like this is like best case scenario for the regulation, right? That that's there to protect us. Well, that's that's the um, that's the assumption. Yes, mm -hmm. um, and, and I would simply ask uh, that at some point, when you have a very close, transparent relationship, one on one, you don't you don't have, you know, truckers and warehouses and big slaughterhouses and 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 you know supermarkets, blah blah blah, in between us. <clears throat> There is, there is a, a lot of protection in that relational transaction that beats all the paperwork you can amass on the industrial scale. We, we recognize scale in a lot of things in life. For example, in Virginia, where I'm from, if you want to open a – if you want to do daycare, let's say you want to do a, a, a work-at-home deal, you know, you want to do a side gig and, and, and keep children – you can keep up to three in your home without subjecting yourself to the licensing and compliance of daycare regulations because they know if all you're going to do is keep three in your homes, those parents, you're going to have a close relationship with them. It's, this, is not a, this is not a daycare center. All right? Right. The, 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 all right. The same thing is true with elder care. Uh, my wife's grandmother spent her last year in a lady's home who is allowed to keep three people as elder care. She was an RN. She wanted to not have to go to the hospital every day and started a side gig in her home. She cooked for them. She took care of them, three of them in her home. Does this vary state by state? It does vary state by state. I'm just giving you an example yeah. of where uh, of where reason where where it's reasonable to appreciate that a different relationship at scale yes. can create its own safety in that particular thing. Can you keep 100 in your home without a license? No. But three, if you're only going to keep three, you're probably going to see them. You're probably going to have a direct relationship with each of their, of their caregivers, their, you know, their people that are uh, signing off for them. It's a different relationship. And so all I would say is that uh, from the safety issue that there needs to be someplace, a point at which – we can opt to do business with each other without a bureaucrat involved. May I ask you this? If you wanted to slaughter a cow and mm -hmm. then you wanted to uh, give some of the meat away to your neighbor, would you have to bring it to some sort per of a perfectly, facility? Perfectly legal. Okay. Perfectly legal. So this is not a – yeah, if it were – if this were all about safety, right. you wouldn't be able to do that. So, so the important thing to realize is that – the the prohibition here is not on the in fact our neighbor can even buy it 
legally. Oh, really? I can't, I just can't sell it. So the prohibition is only Wait on one. If you can't sell it, how are they going to buy it? Black market. So 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 if Black. if 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 I if if I if I did this under the radar, okay? Mm-hmm. So I I butcher a chicken in my backyard and the neighbor comes over and buys it from me, okay? It's legal for him. It's legal for him to buy it. It's not, not legal, legal for, for me to sell, to sell it. <laughs> but every but everything else in society that we've discern, determined as a hazardous a controlled substance, a hazardous substance, the prohibition is both on seller and buyer. Right. Uh, and and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole either. Of, of I'm a I'm a pretty libertarian, you know. Drug, uh, let it all go. But um, but but without regard to that, the the, the prohibitions are equal on e- even possession. If you want to, if you want to have a ton of cocaine in your house, you even if if you just want it over there in the corner on a pallet. Yeah, I've got a ton of cocaine here. What what's wrong with that? You can't have that. Right, all right. Right. But when it comes to food products, the prohibitions are only on one side, and they don't include if you give it away. So if it was really dangerous, you shouldn't be able to buy it, you shouldn't be able to possess it, and you shouldn't be able to give it away. I see what you're saying, kind of, but the difference is, first of all, cocaine is illegal, beef's not illegal. And second of all, it's like you're trying to—the idea is you're trying to protect the consumer— Right. And I think that they have exceptions for these small situations where you're the farmer and this maybe this guy's sure. growing tomatoes and you trade him some uh, filet mignon for some sure. tomatoes and you have a good deal there. That makes sense sure. that they, you know, I think it's more reasonable that they step back and let that happen. But it is odd that they can buy unregulated beef, but you can't sell unregulated beef. So it's like, well, how'd you get that beef? I bought it. Is it regulated? No. All right. <laughs> they, don't even, they don't even go. Who's who's the criminal selling you this beef? <laughs> yeah, that's that's very strange. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. So the the, far, the farmer's the one that's liable. The 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 buyer is the the customer is not. But the same thing is true. I mean, the important. Let's let's appreciate too. For example, uh, wildlife. I mean, right now you can go out and uh, during hunting season, and you can shoot a deer. And you don't have to worry about temperature. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry about any inspections, nothing, or, or a wild pig, right? A squirrel, you can bring that home, and there's, there's no inspection, no nothing over that, and you can dress that yourself. I mean, you know, butcher it, package it, whatever, feed it to your children. You can have a, a block party, invite all your, your block, and, have a, and, and feed everybody with that food. That's perfectly legal. But to do a chicken or a pig— or a cow, at a, on your own, and and sell that. What is what is it about about selling something that suddenly turns it from benign to hazardous? Well, I think it's just protection for the consumer, and I think it's also like it'd be fine if it was a small neighborhood where you knew the farmer and you had a great great relationship with him. But they're talking about doing things at scale when you when you're talking about selling food to you know a, a large city. It's all, you can't really just hope the guy did a good job. That's the argument for regulation. The argument sure. for regulation is when things scale up, where you need someone sure. to step in and protect the consumers. Because if there is one bad actor who's not taking care of it, he has the potential of sickening thousands of people. Right, which is, which is the argument, exactly the argument, for decentralizing 
and de-amalgamating as opposed to centralizing and amalgamating. Is, there, mean, is it a land issue, though? Like, if you wanted to, like, the, the factory farms that I've seen in videos where they have these pigs, mm -hmm. they're stuffed next to each other oh, right. in this large warehouse, and the same with the chickens. Right. How much space would you need to have the same amount of chickens and the same amount of pigs in, right. if you let them free range? All right. Here's, here's my point. What you don't see in those videos is you don't see the hundreds of acres growing corn and soybeans to feed them in that house. The industry wants you to think that this is some sort of a, uh, you know, uh, uh, an island, you know, where we're, boy, look, we're cranking this out of this house. They're not showing you the tractor trailers bringing in the grain, bringing in the, and hauling out the manure and the square miles of, of fields to spread the manure, okay? They're not showing you how dependent that is on this massive land base. And so, so on in the pastured model, the decentralized pastured model, instead of having 15,000, I mean, our farm, we're, we're going to raise like 45,000 chickens this summer. We're not, we're not backyard by any means. But guess what? Those are in 275 bird shelters that are moved every day across pastures. It doesn't take one more acre to produce the feed or handle the manure, whether the chicken is outside or inside. The difference is when you come and see our operation, you see all the land. Mm -hmm. When you see the, the factory farm, you don't see any of the land. But isn't it possible that these factory farms are set up where the farms where the animals are raised are completely separate? It's a separate business from the farms where the soybeans and the corn are raised. Oh, yeah. Well, ours is, too. it's not on the same property. No, it's ours is, too. We, right. we, we, buy, we buy our grain from neighbors. Absolutely. We, right, we, but if they had to grow these animals and grow that food, would they have enough land to do everything together in the same farm? But there's no need to do it on the same farm. I'm a big believer in mutual mutual interdependence, mm -hmm. uh, not complete independence. We don't have any intention to grow our own grain. We we don't have the soils for it. We don't have the equipment for it. We don't have the skill set for it. So we buy from neighbors who do GMO-free, non-genetically modified, GMO-free grain, uh, and and we give them more than they would on a commodity on a commodity scale. Um, and so they love us because we're giving them more per bushel, and they have a nice, secure buyer, and they're local, they're close. Uh, you know, we're not getting it from, you know, uh, foreign countries, and it's all close. So what happens is, in, in the kind of dis, uh, situation I'm describing, instead of having a fundamentally segregated food system, you have a fundamentally integrated food system. I see what you're saying. Th so that, you that's a, what happens. Strong relationship so, yeah. with the people growing that so, grain. So, for example, I mean, you started the discussion with can Los Angeles, you know, is there enough land to feed Los Angeles, you know, the, the, uh, and, and, we, and we could discuss whether there's, whether Los Angeles should be as big as it is. I mean, that, that's a valid discussion. But, it's a very valid discussion. But, but, but let, let, we, we can go there. But first, let me just say that if California, for example, did not export, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's huge you know, almonds uh, uh, all over the world. If California is centered on feeding California, there's absolutely enough here to feed California, okay? I mean, Iowa, Iowa imports 90%. Iowa is probably the most fertile place in the world, and they only eat only 10% only of the food consumed in Iowa is grown in Iowa. 
and processed in Iowa. That's pretty crazy. It is crazy. Hawaii, only 5%. 95% comes from off. Hawaii, I mean, they've got ranches. They've got, I mean, why would you have to import stuff if you can grow pineapples, <laughs> pineapples and, uh, you know, macadamia nuts in your backyard? Come on, you know. Um, so there's a there's a huge uh, there's a huge disconnect. I mean, um, the 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 the, the, pro, the and this is one of the reasons that we're having this. I think this this blowback from nature is that instead of having a fundamentally integrated system, I mean, think of how uh, in Switzerland, you know, they, they take the cows up to the mountain pastures, they milk, and the milk flows down, a, uh, the, the, and they make cheese up there. The whey from the cheese goes into the into the pigs. The pigs eat the whey. And so instead of transporting milk to a centralized cheesemaker and pigs to a centralized processor, they're actually making the cheese on site. So all they've got to actually transport is cheese and um, and, and pork. So they slaughter, they slaughter you know, contiguous near, nearby, not on the same farm necessarily, but but nearby. So you don't have all this transportation. What you have is a fundamentally decentralized, we could even say democratized. Could we say food distance, food, mm. food, food distancing um, that that creates resiliency in the system? So instead of being tied to these 100 or 150 mega processing facilities, we're decentralized Throughout the land base, how much more money do you think it would cost for food? We, we kind of touched on this earlier, but if, right. if you're dealing with this more natural-based mm -hmm. system and it's more complex, it's going to require more people, and it's going to require a complete restructuring of the system that's currently in place. Sure, it would. Um, I, I think I don't have a figure uh, for. I mean, I'm, I'm not a science, but, think but food would be well, 10 I, more? I think I think in general it would be probably double what you'd pay at Costco. Double. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so, an issue so, for a lot of folks. Though, well, right? well, but but now think about this. Think about this. Um, <laughs> you, uh, oh man, where do you start with this? Um, first of all. You're gonna you're gonna offer a lot of jobs. There are a lot of people that are gonna be looking for jobs right now. So so this offers a lot of job opportunities. Number two, it's much more healing on the land. Number three, you don't have all the the pathogenicity. You know, uh, you don't have to use uh, drugs, antibiotics. I mean, our, our our meat doesn't do drugs. Okay, our dinner doesn't do drugs. Uh, people don't realize that you know two thirds of the drugs used in the country aren't in people; they're in animals. Okay. So you don't have those issues. There are a lot of issues that you that you don't have, and those those add up in the big picture. So I always tell people our food is the cheapest aggregate food there is. We just put all the costs in. All our all our costs are in. Okay, and and so we're not we're not asking taxpayers, society, the planet. We're not asking them to pick up the tab for you know for cheating. For, for cutting for cutting corners and, and that's and, what Costco and what's, is yeah, and what's know, what's right. interesting is that that uh, 40 years ago right now today nine percent of the average um, person's income nine percent is spent on food that's our average in our country 40 years ago it was 18 hmm. 40 years ago nine percent of our personal income was spent on health care today that's 18 percent 
Oh, interesting. Isn't that interesting how those have inverted? Yeah, very interesting. Th- those have inverted in rough in roughly 40 years. Ever since the U.S. duh, called the U.S. duh, uh, created the food pyramid and put Twinkies and Cocoa Puffs on the bottom as a foundational. And, and you can track the diabetes. Uh, you can track obesity. You can track all of these things right through from that time. It's That's a, an interesting way to look at costs, right? Like we're only looking at the cost of the meat. We're not looking at the cost for your health, the cost of health care. Yeah, when you see steak at Costco, it's insanely cheap. It almost doesn't. It's almost obscene. It's like, right. how is a steak that cheap? Like, what are you doing? Like, how is it possible? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's um, it, you know, it, there there are all sorts of special, you know, whatever fraternal negotiated things mm-hmm. uh, to make that happen. And um, and the fact is that you don't have to watch the news very much to know that farm suicide is spiking. Um, uh, you know, there, there's, there are implications. I mean, the, the whole, the domino effect of dysfunction, uh, there's a reason why rural America has a bigger opioid problem than, than urban America. You know, the pandemic has been primarily an urban situation, but the opioid crisis has been primarily a rural situation. Why? Because, uh, folks feel, um, Disaffirmed. I mean, one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest things that this um, virus has brought out. You know, they say that the crisis never makes, it never makes a trend. It simply accelerates or brings into focus a trend that was already there. Mm. And one of the trends that's been happening in this country now for 20 years is a bifurcation of access between rural and urban to the internet. Like on our farm, you know. We we still, you know, we still have hours of the day where we can't get cell phone service. We can't get Internet service. Somebody comes to the store and we can't run their credit card because the Wi-Fi is down. Um, it's very, very slow, very problem. We can't do Skype. We, you know, we barely can do Zoom. When I do Zoom calls, uh, it kicks me off about three times every hour. Right you know? now, that sounds like a magic place that you live. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing that people are having a hard time with is digital detoxing. It, right, I, I understand that. too much of it in their lives. I, I I get that. I get that. But when you're running a business, right, or you, or you're trying to do schoolwork from home, yeah. So what's happening is we are now um, we're now getting a very uh, a, a very accelerated urban rural um, uh, divide of opportunity because because rural we don't ha- we don't have this this access and you know I'm not asking for big government programs but I am telling you know um, I am telling you that that this this um, this access to broadband internet especially now as we start working from home and as we have people there there are lots of people i'm sure you probably know some that are saying i'm getting out of the city and i ain't going back i mean right now new york city all the movie companies in new york their warehouses are stuck full of people who called them and said i fled the city with from the coronavirus i want you to clean out my apartment put it in a warehouse and i'll tell you where to send it when i get myself situated Mm -hmm. i mean that's a phenomenon that's already happening well where are those people going to go? I mean, ideally, 
they would we we would actually spread out and and, and create a more you know uh, a spread out population on the on the landscape. Well, people are realizing the hazards of living on top of each other like that. Not right. just because of virus and the things spread like wildfire through the population, but also when you have to get out. If something goes down and you got to get out of there and you realize, like, I don't even have a car. Right. Like, I can't, what am I going to do? Carry my bed on my back? Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. And people realize, like, hey, maybe this isn't the best idea to live like this. And then when they look at the prospects of New York City going back to normal, like what it was five months ago, boy, that's a long road. You might be two years from now before right. it's like that again. Right. That, that's right. It, it's, and it might not happen at all. This is the other thing. I was watching this uh, this documentary on the construction of viruses, this uh, piece, and they, they were talking about like this it, when they give an 18-month uh, window for creating a vaccine for this virus. They're like, but maybe not. Right. Yeah, they're like maybe right. it does maybe they don't come up with one that's effective. No, that's I mean, possible too. We've been forty years with the flu. Still don't have a flu vaccine. Uh what is the flu shot then? The Isn't flu it? shot. Well, that's that's supposedly to help the, the flu, but there's how many strains of it and they never hit the right strain. I mean the actual the actual efficacy of the flu shot has not been has but not been a, determined. It is a vaccine, though, correct? Yeah, it, it is. It is. But I had but, Dr. But, but Peter Hotez on, who is a, an expert in vaccines and infectious diseases and tropical diseases. And one of the things that he was saying that if you get the flu shot, even if it's not for the correct strain, there's still enough pieces of this that will protect you uh, from getting really bad sickness from the flu strain, even if it's the wrong strain. That's one opinion. I mean, you don't agree th- with that. No, I don't. Ag- I don't agree with that opinion. I, I think. But well, you're out there drinking with the cows. And absolutely. Shit. <laughs> I, yeah, I do. I'm, 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 I mean, we when this when this all broke, we sent a we sent a letter out to our customers, uh, saying, "Hey, come to the farm. Uh, take off your shoes. Walk barefoot through the pasture. Uh, we've got a nice big compost pile. Stick your hands in the compost pile. You know, I mean, feed your microbiome." I, I, um, Did anybody take you up on that offer? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, so you we, have a bunch had... of freaks out there walking oh, yeah. barefoot. Oh, yeah, it's great. Sticking their hand in poop. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's great. It's great. And and so did you check on them? See if they're okay a couple weeks later? I don't think anybody's uh, uh, gotten sick from it. Um, it's a but, check. But but yeah, but I think uh, I, I think that that in general, uh, we we need to be asking as a nation. I mean, I'm still waiting for when they do the daily. Uh, briefs up there in the White House, I'm still at, uh, waiting for somebody up there, anybody, somebody to step to the microphone and say, look, folks, let's talk about immunity. Yeah. Let's talk about how you build immunity. And the fact that we're in the middle of this and we've still got the Coke trucks running up and down the road and 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 look, I like a Coke, you know, once a year, twice a year. Okay? But but there's a big difference between doing that and, and three times a day. Right. Um uh, where, what are we eating? Uh, are we eating, you know, uh, comfort food, taco chips? Um, look, I like chocolate, but enough is enough, you know? And, and are, are we in our kitchens? Are we, are we actually getting uh, good food or are, are we, are we hydrating? All of us are, most of us are dehydrated because the water tastes bad. Uh, well, let's, let's make sure we each drink half a gallon a day. Let's, let's start there. How about sleep? Um, are you getting, you know, eight and a half hours a night or are you staying up watching Netflix because you're depressed eating, you know, chips and drinking soda because you're depressed and you're getting six hours of sleep. 
all of that builds up. Hey, how about, how about, have you forgiven everybody? You know, resentment, resentment eats you. I mean, it, it, it eats mm-hmm. you up, resentment, you know, um, vengeance, uh, resentment. Um, and, and, and some guilt. guilt, yes, guilt. Um, and whatever you stole, give it back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you've got a, if you've got a bad situation with somebody, call them up, apologize. Yeah. You fucked up. Yeah. Be, be the first, be the yeah. first. Yeah, exactly. Let, let it go. Let, let it, go. it go. Let yeah. it go. And I just think, I just think that those simple, like, you know, six or seven, Immune, get exercise, go get outside, run around in the sun. All right. Um, Those kinds of things. If we I mean, you know, Michelle Obama had the Let's Move campaign. It was a great campaign. She was she was right on. Okay, Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to be political. I'm just she was she was right. And uh, now, uh, I mean, my uh, my driver that picked me up from the airport last night, you know, he said, he said, uh, I, you know, this is my first, this, he said, this is my first job for a month. And um, he said, all I've been doing is uh, inside the house watching Netflix. Well, that's not going to build your immune system. I mean, he needs to get out and go stick his hand in poop. <laughs> don't you think that, the immu- I mean, I don't know if this is true, but I would imagine that the immune system is like your cardiovascular system. It needs a workout. It does, and and many people believe this. In fact, there's an entire uh, school of thought, the um, you know this, this hyperallergenic thing, uh, where a lot of the allergies we have today are because we're so sterile. Uh, I mean, this was part of the part of the kind of unspoken part of um, the book Guns, Germs, and Steel. Yeah, you know that was a fascinating book. And it talked about the ascendancy of the Europeans who kept livestock in their house. Mm. Right? And that's why they were immune to smallpox and me- all these things that were devastating to the other people that didn't have uh, nearby livestock. And so we want our customers to come out and pet a calf, go in the brooder and pick up a chick and hold a chicken. And, and we think that that's really, really um, – that's not just – that's not just – whatever nostalgic i would be interested it, to see what's gonna i'm sorry but what's gonna happen when people do go back to normal life with these compromised immune systems from being inside all the time whether or not just regular common cold kicks in on a larger scale well there are medical doctors i can't give you names right now but i i'm like you i'm sleuthing all this uh different material and um i can tell you there are are numerous medical doctors who are saying that as we come out of this, we're going to see a spate of exactly colds, flu, different things, because we haven't been exercising our immune systems yeah. in this soup. And in fact, um, uh, Governor Cuomo was, um, it was interesting, his reaction the other day when he got the report, the data now, there's you know more data is coming out every day. And one of the reports uh, that just came out last week was that in New York, the people who continued working actually had less, um, less uh, whatever, positives to the virus than the people who sheltered across the demographic, including frontline hospital workers, which, you know, you look at that and you say, well, you know, the people who were sheltering 
um, they were dwelling on it. I mean, they were watching news all day. If you watch the media all day, you are you are scared to death. Okay, and, and rightly so. That's what you're feeding your mind. But if you're if you're working and you're building and you're creating and you're doing your doing your things, sure, you might think about the virus once in a while. But I mean, literally, in, in my day, I don't think about it, but a few minutes a day. It's only when I come in and turn on the news or or look at podcasts you know, that I'm I'm besieged with I'm I'm, I'm interested in it. But I, but I'm out there busy and. And there's something that happens, I think, psychosomatically when you just consume, when your mind is consumed every day with, uh, with, with fear. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's the media's played into it, and and also people are hearing they're hearing terrible stories about emergency rooms, particularly in New York City, and places where it's stuffed full of people, and the hospitals are overrun, the ICUs are un- overrun. Thank goodness that that is sort of uh, calmed down, even in New York City. Right. Cuomo basically said today that they're back to where they were when the p- pandemic exploded. So it's nice that they've sort of leveled that out. But what's going to happen when you just let people out again? Are they going to start getting sick like crazy again? I mean, is it going to be another spread? There's a real worry about that and a real worry that during this time, we haven't been encouraging people to build up their immune system. We have been encouraging them to exercise. We've just been feeding them fear. Yes, that's right. It's, it's, been, it's been a feeling of fear. And uh, so, you know, interestingly, um, I've just I've got a book uh, that's actually um, we'll have in hand uh, May in whatever, uh, 10 days. Uh, a new book coming out I've written with a with a uh, nutritionist biochemist, uh, Dr. Sina McCullough. And um, the, the title of the book is Beyond Labels. And uh, it's it's a it's a doctor and a farmer um, leads you to a place of food empowerment. You know, when you stand in front of a, a bunch of labels and you see everything from organic certified to fair trade to uh you know, natural. Um, they're very confusing. They're very and, and Pete. What happens is when you have when you're faced with so much uh, choice of of label information, you tend to just shut down. You get paralyzed. You say, ah, ah, "Forget it." You know, it's too complicated. It's too it's too difficult. And um, so, so we've written this book. Her, she, from this chemistry standpoint, me from a farmer standpoint, trying to cut through this, and so people um, can be empowered to actually, to actually make food decisions that will. And we talk a lot about immunity, my, feeding your microbiome, um, to build that up so that you have a diversified enough, exercised enough immune system. That you can withstand this, and uh, and so I think that I think that developing a robust immune system. Think about if that occupied your mind. How am I going to develop an, a robust immune system? Just think about dwelling on that, as opposed to oh no, am I going to get it? Am I going to get it? Right. I don't think we've scratched the surface. As to what thinking, I'm going to build my immune system. Let's let's be pro. You know, let's let's go get them. Okay. Let let let's just just the mind body connection. What that does to your body to suddenly get a burst of hope, as opposed to 
a constant diet of of despair. Well, it has to have a big factor. It just, I mean, it, that kind of stress plays a big factor with people's immune systems all the time. If people are stressed out, they always get sick. It's real, real common. It just makes sense. And and I think this kind of fear, particular, I mean, the way I was experiencing it when the when the lockdown was first ordered and everyone was at the supermarket, no one was wearing masks yet, but everyone was stockpiling food, and uh, you know, we were nervous. We were real nervous because we didn't know what this was going to be like. And we were also, I was nervous particularly because I feel like the information we were getting out of China was not correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was worried that when you see those videos of them spraying disinfectant on houses and buildings, it's like maybe this is way worse than we think it is and it's going to hit America really hard because <laughs> we've been lied to by the Chinese. There was a lot of fear. So I remember lying in bed at night and like testing my breath, like maybe I have it now. <laughs> Maybe it's going to get worse. You know, like, yeah. there was a lot of that. Yeah. There was a lot of that. I didn't yeah. sleep real good at all mm -hmm. for maybe the first few days of, of lockdown until I sort of calmed down and realized, well, I'm not going anywhere. I can't get it. <laughs> you know, and then I I got tested. I'm like, okay, well, this is nice to know that I don't have it currently. Like, um, maybe if I just keep doing what I'm doing, I won't get it. But then, you you know, I'd have days where half the day I'd think, this is all bullshit. What we need to do is tell people how to strengthen their immune system. And then you read some crazy story about some new inflammatory syndrome they're finding on, you know, some patients where, you know, their, their feet are swelling up. Yeah, and, blue toes yeah. and all this. Yeah. And then yeah. you get scared again. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I think that that brings up the issue of how our society now views death. I, I read an interesting uh, article just in the last couple of days about how, how as, as we have left, you know, it used to be when we were kids, we, we, we used the term somebody dropped dead. Remember that? You know, they, oh, they, yeah. they just dropped dead. Good okay. old days. <laughs> Good old days. All right. Well, today, we don't say they dropped dead. We say apparently medicine failed them. Or the hospital. I mean, it, it, it's like it's like instead of just people. Yeah, we do drop dead. Um, instead, every death is some sort of a failure of our techno sophisticated cryogenic, you know, system that's supposed to keep everybody, um, you know, beautiful and. Perfect forever. Per perfect forever. And, and, and the fact the fact is, you know, on, and I think that's an advantage of on the farm where we are. I mean, we we see death every day. I mean, we we know that things, and and in fact, in fact, uh, death makes room. I mean, a compost pile is is death and life. I mean, it's 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 you've got microbes eating stuff that was living, and then and then that makes new life. And of course, my family knows that that um, when I go. Uh, they're supposed to put me in a compost pile, you know. Do, do, really? Yeah, yeah. Put me in a compost pile. I mean, that's is that legal though? <laughs> Don't they have to cremate you or something I, I, stupid? I think I think, I think they have to at least put me in the ground or something. But that, that's my joke. Yeah, I just don't even think a... they're allowed to just put you in the ground. I think they have to pump you up with chemicals. First. Oh no, 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 no. My dad, my dad, nothing, really? nothing. Nope. In the ground. And that was it. No, Did nothing. you have to sign paperwork saying that you didn't kill your dad or anything? <laughs> Because you know what? No, no. Um, what we did have to get was a special use permit for a family graveyard. Oh. So we, we've got we've got ten we've got uh, permission for ten spots. So, so in a family we're, we're graveyard, for a couple generations. you don't have to use formaldehyde. Or no, no, but nothing, nothing. Everywhere else you do though, correct? You either cremate or well, use formaldehyde, and I think they use formaldehyde before they cremate. Well, there's there are now uh, burgeoning around the country. There are natural cemeteries. 
Really? Yeah, and and there there are specially permitted cemeteries where there's you know nothing nothing is uh, is used. But we're <laughs> the problem with that is they can't exhume anybody, right? <laughs> uh, they exhume your bones, I guess. Yeah, the, bo- the bones would stay for a good while. We know the bones last a long time. But uh, you know, my my thing is that look, I don't want I don't want a bunch of people to die. But but the fact is that. That that death is is transformative, and I don't want to get all too mystical and spiritual. But whatever your your spiritual tradition is, uh, I mean, mine happens to be Judeo Christian ethics, so I, I think there is an afterlife. But 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 even even if even if there's nothing, even if you say, well, I'm dead and there's no spirit and I'm gone, uh, even so, that makes room for tomorrow's babies. It makes room for. New ideas, new things. I mean, you 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 can't uh, you can't have you can't have life without the regenerative regenerative capacity of death, and 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 the the foundation of ecology is life, death, decomposition, regeneration. Life, death, not regeneration might be look like something else, okay, but but that's 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 our digestion. It's compost. It's you know, it's everything, and when and when we get sterilized, uh, and 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 move away from that, I think we lose the beauty of the transformative capacity of that part of life. Yeah, I think it speaks to what you were talking about earlier that they look at death as some sort of a failure instead of just a part of the natural cycle. I was reading about um, one of the, you know, they try to find new ways that the coronavirus looks terrible in, in articles. And one thing they were saying was it, it takes between two and ten years off the life of life expectancy of the average person who gets it. I'm like, okay, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, I, it, I, they came to that conclusion because they looked at old people who got it that might have possibly lived, you know, seven, eight years, five years more, and they just started doing these random calculations based on how old people normally die. But then the problem with that is if you look at the overall numbers, the average age that people die from coronavirus is actually older than the average age people die. Which is like, well, what are you right. saying then? Like, right. it, is it? It's taking years off some people's lives, but everything does. If you fall down, it takes years off your life. If you're old, right? You die yeah. from falling. That right. fall should we stop all falling? If you get sick, if you it eat takes too much years. sugar, yes. Well, that's a big <laughs> one, right? And that's one that's killing people at almost the same numbers as the coronavirus was at the peak. I remember there was like a graph: the coronavirus has. Past heart attacks. Like, but yeah. wait a minute. How many goddamn heart attacks are there? Is there something we could do about heart attacks? Forget about that now. This is a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, cigarettes, yeah. no one even touched with a 10-foot pole because cigarettes is killing people at oh, four yeah. and five times the rate coronavirus was, and no one was saying anything of it because it's an elective thing. You're allowed to do it. It's a freedom. People enjoy it. You're grown adults here, mm-hmm. but stay home. Stay home and wear a mask and don't touch anything and stay home, and you're going to lose your job, but stay home. Because you're not really a grown adult. You're a grown adult. I'll let you smoke cigarettes at home. How about that? You feel better? And now <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I think, uh, I think a, a couple of things. One is that, you know, our country has never told people, when we talk about, you know, personal self-worth and your own personal affirmation uh, in, in, a, in a climate of fear and worry, the worst thing you can do is tell lots of people 
You're not important. You're not essential. You, you know. Right. Yeah. You know what you've been doing all your life. What you do every day. Nah. It's it's not essential. Uh, what what a, what a faster way to whatever deaffirm you yes. know, a, a person than to tell them well, you're not essential. I mean, I, I just think it's horrible. And and now we have the the data. And again, yeah, the, these data points. I and mean, we've all become, I think, through this more wary of statisticians. Yeah, uh, but but one that I just saw again this week was that every every percent increase in unemployment equals thirty thousand deaths in our country annually. Every one percent unemployment equal suicide, depression, yes. you know, whatever. That's a really important statistic. Thir- yeah, it is. One, so 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 we've gone now from you know that that white hot three and a half percent unemployment to now what eighteen and a half? That's fifteen. 15%. I'm frankly, I'm frankly actually amazed that we're at only 18% right now. Uh, but I think that's only because a lot of people have been furloughed and are not un- unemployed. Um, so, so you know, if, if all those people go back to work that have been furloughed, you know, restaurants and things like that, it'll be okay. But anyway, we've, we've increased in the last 60 days 15% in unemployment. If that 30,000 figure is actually correct... That's an additional four hundred fifty thousand people a year, you know, uh, uh, dying from from external ramifications of of being uh, unwanted. And this is in line with what you said earlier about costs, right? Right. Like we were, you're talking about the cost of food, but and then look at the cost of health care. When the cost of food is higher and food is higher quality, look at that. The cost of health where it drops in an equal number. Right. And I think this is this is along those lines. We're, we're looking at death yes. through the coronavirus, but we're saying, oh, you're putting dollars over lives. You're saying the economy is more important than people's lives. Mm-hmm. No, we're saying you need a nuanced perspective because if you ignore the economy, it actually costs lives and it costs right. a staggering number of lives and in a horrible way, suicide, drug addiction, right. depression. Right. And, and if I if I may go a, a little, uh, just one other little thread on this whole thing, um, Again, thinking about well, where are wh- who? How how can we employ all the people? I mean, if if our if our discretionary spending, if if this is going to make people more careful about discretionary spending, you know, flying to Paris, going on a Caribbean cruise, going to the Sandals <laughs> Resort. You know how cheap those Caribbean cruises are. Jamie and I have been going over this. It's basically cheaper <laughs> than being homeless. You could be on a cruise for like five to seven nights for 105 bucks with all you can eat. Wow. Where are you going to get that kind of no, food? That's right. You're, you're not going yeah. to. So like, if I was a homeless person, I would just get me a constant string <laughs> of, of cruise ship of cruise rides. Ships. <laughs> you got to figure 100 wow. that's 5,000 bucks a year. Yeah. Right? A little bit more than 5,000 bucks a year. You live like a king. Wow. You wow. get your own little spot. See, they want you to pay for booze, I think. Oh, We're pretty pretty that, sure that's what it is. Right? That, that's where they make their money. Yeah, so oh, they that's give where they you make their money. Ridiculous cheap board. Kind, kind of like yeah. gas stations make their money on on jerky and uh, you know and, and soft drinks. Inside. Sure, yeah. They don't make their money on gas. But anyway, um, so so one of the things that that we're uh, key on because uh, our fertility program is carbon, and that's what feeds the soil. Carbon, right? Not 
101010 chemical fertilizer, carbon. And so, do you our, use fertilizers at all? No, no, we That's don't. That's amazing. We don't. So just manure and natural but, fertilizers. But we have a big industrial chipper. You'd love this machine. <laughs> I mean, it's the ultimate, you know, boy toy. You know, it's a, it's a 120 horsepower diesel engine that can that can chip 19 inch. You can take a 40 foot tree and just huck it in there, and it just whoa, whoa, you know, just chips. I've that. seen those online. All right, well, I mean, they're they're like the ult, they're, they're the coolest machine. That right. scares the shit so, out of me. All right, so so but but that's that, remember that, Fargo. <laughs> that that's our fertilizer factory. Uh. That, that, that okay, so carbon. So, so we integrate forest with open land, and and we integrate the carbon uh, from the forest. So we cut junk trees, dead trees, crooked trees, weak trees, and thin the forest, and that enables the good trees, the healthy trees, to grow more vigorously, better, reduces fire uh, potential because you're you know you're thinning it out taking out all the dead stuff and that then becomes our carbon base for bedding the animals for you know and for all the composting that we do and we do you know mountains and mountains of compost where i'm going with this is when we talk about costs right now how much is our country spending fighting wildfires and how much are we losing fighting all these fires? I mean, we're in California, right? I mean, look at the, the devastation that fires have caused. Imagine, imagine if those, if we had thousands of people with chippers thinning the forest, turning them into almost park-like like they were before the Europeans came, the Native Americans kept them going with, you know, with fire, but there were there was megafauna here, megafauna. And so we graze through, we convert a lot of it into, you know, silvopasture, widely spaced trees that are growing unimpeded uh, with, with grazing animals underneath so that there's no fire damage, there's no buildup of fuel. And suddenly we're producing our own food and we're eliminating the danger of wildfire with technology called chainsaws and chippers and that carbon becomes the fertility for the vineyards and the and the the agricultural lands it feeds the soil so now we have earthworms instead of hard soil we don't have erosion because our organic matter is up on our farm using these principles we've gone in we've gone from 1% organic matter to over 8% organic matter in the soil, and every 1% holds another 20,000 gallons of water per acre. Whoa. So, so, if we, so if we, so in, in our 60 years of being there in the show at Polyphase, um, we have gone from 1% to 8, over 8%, let's just say that's seven clicks, seven times 20 is 140,000 gallons of water per acre now that we can hold that we couldn't hold before. And it's because of the grazing, the perennials, and the composting that's building up the organic matter in the soil. That could be done in California. When you start talking about holding water, it's not just about 
how much rainfall are we getting? It's how much are we actually holding in in the sponge right. uh, to reduce you know flooding and runoff and things like that. So it sounds like your method could keep from uh, the situation they find with some farms with the roading topsoil where they have right. to su- constantly supplement. Right. But how would you? How do you grow enough corn? Like if you want to have like those monocrop agricultural fields mm-hmm. where you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of corn, just corn or just soybeans or just alfalfa whatever it is like if you want to do those monocrop things you how are you going to refertilize the soil in the same manner with that you don't large have a scale you don't have them you don't have those there, monocrop there, there, agriculture there, there's, situations there's um uh, now, corn's, a, corn's an amazing plant, so are soybeans. So I'm not – all I'm saying is that right now our corn crop uh, in, in the U.S., what is it, 30 percent goes to, goes to alcohol for fuel? Well, that takes more energy than the, uh, than the fuel we get. So ethanol, you mean? Ethanol, yeah. Mm-hmm. We don't need that. Ethanol is a byproduct of what we used to think that we needed ethanol because exactly. we thought for, we were running, we were out, run, of running out of of gas. Right, right. right. So, so – that's not that's not necessary. Okay. So Thank that, you, fracking. Yeah. So so we, we so that's not good either, though. No. So we we don't need we don't need to grow that corn. Well, right. you know, um, uh, you know, come on electric vehicles and and that. I mean, that all that's changing the landscape a lot. But uh, isn't a lot of it for agriculture? Well, for, yeah. So for, so for so that, so then the next is to feed to to feed um, cattle. Mm-hmm. So another huge percentage, like twenty percent, goes to feed cattle. And then another huge percent goes to hogs and chickens, of course. But the, one of the problems with the hogs and chickens is that they are not integrated with the food system. So right now, right now, um, 50 percent, almost 50 percent, it's arguable, you know, who, what statistician, again, figures lie and liars figure, but somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of human edible food on the planet is never eaten by a human. It spoils, it's thrown away, and 75% of everything that goes in the landfills is biodegradable. So when you start matching up the waste, the, the waste streams and the, loss, the losses in our food system and our waste streams, what happens is very quickly you start seeing that it's the segregated, it's this, it's this single species, single crop, single segregated notion where, where it's not related, it's not symbiotic, it's not synergistic, that actually creates the problem. A, a, a city in Belgium, this was, this was articulated in uh, Pat Foreman's wonderful book, uh, the title is City Chicks, and she talk, she's talking about urban chickens. A city in Belgium offered three chickens per household to anybody that wanted a chicken. And they had 2,000 families raise their hands and says, yeah, we'll take three chickens. So they got 6,000 chickens, distributed them through this, through this city. And in the first month, it dropped 100 tons of food waste to the landfill. What? And so not only did they eliminate the, the landfill waste, all these people now suddenly had chickens. And Pat's done all the math on this and shows that if one in three households had enough chickens to eat your kitchen scraps, there would not be a there would not be an egg industry in the United States. It, it would be completely un, non-essential. Really? So that's the power of integration. That's the power of 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 proximate of actual putting stuff close. You know. So they wouldn't have other. an egg industry because everyone would be growing yeah, their own everybody eggs. Everybody have their own eggs. 
Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the landfills, the landfill would get way, way less material. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so then, so then, the chickens don't need the corn from the cornfields. So the fields can be cur- turned back into prairie to feed herbivores, which now would be cows, not bison. But that's our that's our herbivore of of value. And so now you're at perennials instead of annuals, and perennials instead of annuals, perennials put energy in the soil, annuals extract energy from the soil. So now suddenly you're producing, you're, instead of producing an annual fertilized with petroleum to feed beef for somebody else, instead you're not growing the corn, you don't need the tractor, you don't need the petroleum, the cows fertilize it themselves, and the perennial builds the soil like it did with the bison, and you have the beef, instead of coming out of a feedlot, it's coming off the prairie like the bison did. And suddenly you're building soils that are losing soil, and your production doesn't change one iota. It doesn't take any more land to produce the beef with what I've described than what it does with corn. It doesn't take any more land. Okay, so you're 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 essentially saying that they have to convert to not just growing corn. That's right. They're going to have to do a different kind of farming. That's right. That's right. Corn yeah. corn is I mean that kind of monocrop monospeciated thing is is a complete I mean we we started the interview talking about standing on nature on her neck, you know. Yeah. That is a, a a quintessential example of standing on nature's neck. And, um, you know, the reason our farm was so deteriorated when we came to it was because we're in, we're in Virginia, Shenandoah Valley. And, um, you know, that was the breadbasket of the Confederacy during the Civil War, if you know your history. And, um, and, and essentially the war was finally won when, when they burned all the crops in the Shenandoah Valley. And, and, and f- during that time, the valley lost somewhere between three and five feet of soil during that that time period so the soils are worn out and then we got the westward expansion and it all moved to ohio and indiana and then finally the dakotas and you know kept heading west so this this head west head west young man head west was partly because our agriculture destroyed the soils and if we don't if we don't start using our agriculture to build soils we have a lot more to worry about than a than a than a covid-19 deal a lot more to worry about. If we don't figure out a way to produce food abundantly and grow soil while we're doing it, the pandemic is going to be the least of our concerns. There's a thing that keeps getting repeated, and it's that we only have 60 more seasons left in in our topsoil. This is a thing that gets repeated almost as if there's no solution to this, that because we have to feed so many people, we're, we're, we're doomed. And, uh, what you're saying is, no, we just can't do it this way because this way is unsustainable. It's unnatural to begin with. That's exactly right. So we, so we have to fundamentally change. We have to, we, we have to, um, we have to use our carbon, our biomass strategically, which includes food scraps, by the way. Use, use everything strategically. You, you can't just throw stuff away. Right. This is, this it shouldn't is, be. This is sunlight. That's supposed to be decomposed. I mean, the fact that landfills get get green environmental awards for poking methane methane tubes in the landfill and running running the the 
excavation equipment on the methane from the decomposing material in a landfill. <laughs> it's it, it, it's it's shouldn't be in there. No, no, it's unconscionable. No, what we need to do is is hook up. We we need hookups. We need to where the waste streams like they uh, uh, move right into the the use streams and and you have circles not linear not linear thinking and i mean just another another one for example is um, is ponds a lot of people don't realize that before the europeans came to north america north america was 8% water today we're less than 1% i mean i mean surface area think about the united states being 80% water including 8%, 8% right 8, 8 i'm sorry 8% 8% water i mean think about that in in Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, all right? Where'd all that water come from? Beavers. Massive, massive beaver populations. I mean, there were 200 million beavers. And we now know archaeologically digging up skeletons, some of them were as big as a Volkswagen uh, car. Really? These were big, big. The the megafauna... (sighs) The megafauna is incredible. I mean, it's the same as the wombats in uh, Australia. You know, now these wombats are like, you know, 80 pounds or little, you know, cute little wombats. Well, they know by digging up skeletons, they used to have nine foot wombats in Australia. Nine foot wombats. So so when we look at the megafauna that was here, you know, the, the fact is that the planet used to have more animal weight on it than it does today with all the animals, all the factory farms and all the people. So it's it's not people and animals that are messing up the planet. It it it's it's our it's the human management of the ecosystem that's messing up. The abundance here is is through the roof. So so imagine imagine if if we and this is what we've been doing on our farm is every time we get a few extra dollars, we build another pond. Now we're not beavers. Um, but but we have you know we have excavation equipment that we can go in and build ponds, so that when we have a flood, and and everything is flooding, we're actually trapping a lot of that, not all of it, but trapping a lot of it up on high ground permaculture style, that we can then dispense for irrigation in a dry time, so that we never pump from an aquifer. That's the commons. When you pump from an aquifer, you're depleting the commons. But if you're if you're reducing flooding and using that in a drought to keep vegetation growing when there's so much sunlight, then you're actually increasing the commons. And we believe very strongly that as a result of our farming, we should not be depleting the commons. We should be increasing the commons. As a result of our, there should be more soil, more water, more breathable air, more, you know, more wildlife, more pollinators, more... There's also been a false narrative that it attributes most of our greenhouse gases or a significant number, uh, a significant percentage of our greenhouse gases coming from cows and, and cow agriculture. And one of the things that they found through using uh, satellite imaging and when they're, when they're trying to detect methane, mm-hmm. they're finding it's landfills. That these landfills are a huge, right. huge problem in terms of greenhouse gases. Yeah. That this the the total wrong way of approaching it, the way you were saying, burying this biological material in the ground instead of using it as compost is actually not just counterproductive, but it's actually detrimental. Yes. It's not the wrong way to do it because it doesn't 
serve the soil, yeah. it actually fucks up the air. <laughs> it, it's not a zero, it's a negative. It's a negative, yeah, but the, with really, the same yeah. amount of biological material. It's yeah. just managed incorrectly, which is really crazy when you stop and think about sure it. Sure it is. If, if, all, if all the biomass that we have, um, uh, what's the word, non-leveraged or, or, or thrown away, if all the biomass we've thrown away in the last you know, 100 years, if it had instead been leveraged for soil building, uh, feeding chickens, I mean, you know, whatever, um, you know, today we would not have all that methane and today we would have soils that were that would be a lot richer and we would have you know uh better earthworm populations you know we'd have a, a tremendous amount of of soil um maintained soil abundant fertility and so the beautiful thing is that this this is not that difficult to bring back uh i mean i've been preaching this message you know all my life and it's exciting to now suddenly have people stepping back and realize, wow, you know, we just kind of put a pause button and there are now, you know, dolphins in Venice again. Sure. There's, you know, you, in Shanghai, you can see across the street, you know, right. oh, there's blue. How about L.A.? Yeah, L.A. Amazing, I mean, amazing pictures, quality. amazing pictures. So so the, the when people say, let's get back to normal. Uh, look, I, I, I don't I don't want. I don't want the the uh, whatever the, the tragedy that we're having, but I also don't want to go back to normal because normal was this foot on nature's yeah. neck, saying you know we're gonna. So so that's where you start saying well you know what what does the future look what what could a future look like, and that's where we start talking about decentralization, integration, um, you know integrating our all of our streams, and. Um, Large scale change. Oh, like really large. Very scale large change. scale. Very, very, very disruptive. Very disruptive. But everybody has a job. Everybody has a new thing. I mean, my thing about the carbon economy. Uh, of course, you know we're there in that hardwood region of Virginia. You know, near the Blue Ridge Parkway, Shenandoah National Park, all that stuff. And the and the the, the federal uh, forests are atrocious. I mean, dead trees. The fuel buildup is fuel buildup is just ridiculous. Can, you know, wouldn't it be cool if if uh, mommy or daddy could come home and their six year old says, you know, what did you do today? And mommy and daddy are able to say, well, we <clears throat> we stewarded, you know, uh, five acres up on Jack Mountain and um, and kept it from having a fuel load to burn and took that biomass so that a farmer could feed his earthworms. So there'd be soil for your future. There will be abundance and soil for your future. I mean, what an affirming, sacred, righteous vocation uh, that would be. And, and it would affirm people who want to work outside and have calluses and blisters on their hands. You know, we've spent a, we've spent a couple generations marginalizing what we call blue collar mm. people and and uh, one of the big issues right now as we go to an AI, uh, you know, a techno future is what do we do with people that like to work outside with their hands and, and sweat, you know, the, the, the Michael Rowe, you know, the, the dirty jobs. I'm suggesting that a carbon economy is one of many, many pathways to actually 
envisioning a future where thousands and thousands of people would be employed in healing ministries so that we'd be caressing our nest. You know, so many times the the idea in agriculture and the farming community is that, that nature is a uh, nature's a a reluctant partner that we've got to you know we got to get them in a wrestling hole we got to dominate and conquistador and we're going to make you you know we're going to push you when actually nature is a benevolent lover that just wants to be caressed and we haven't and we haven't put attention on caressing in the right places for a long time isn't it also that w- when you say the word we god there's so many of us and so many people are already invested in doing these jobs that are actually counterproductive for nature. Right. Like these people right. that run these monocrop farms for sure. soybeans or, or what have you. Sure. Like, boy, that's a battleship that's going to be difficult to turn around. It is. But the power so, – so you say, well, where do you start? Um, well, you start at your, at your dinner plate. And that's why at our farm, our little moniker on our little – you know, our little um, – uh, Cooler bags is um, healing the land one bite at a time. We want our people to know that that what's on your plate, when it's multiplied a billion times, you know, that actually creates the legacy, the, the legacy ecology you're leaving for your grandchildren. That that somehow that that has to be made. And, and people have to understand that. And I think that the, the wake-up call, the shock, the jar, the, the, the emotional jarring of this pandemic, I mean, um, we're seeing for the first time people who never would have darkened our door or asked us for anything, they're asking us. And that's why, you know, that's why C and I wrote this book, Beyond Labels. Uh, and and, and you know, we started this a year ago. We had no idea that it would launch in the middle of this. But but we realized, hey, this this is a timely thing. Mm. Um, and we're having, I mean, we're having people call me, uh, can I go buy land near you that you'll manage so I have a bunker? You know, <laughs> when, when things go wonky. Um, we, I mean, for the, for the first time, I've never heard this before, but it's happening around the country. People like us, we're getting calls. How can I get on your first class list? How can I get on your business class? In other words, for the first time in our history, and we've been in business now for, you know, half a century. We were in it before organic was cool. You know, we were, we were one of those early, you know, very, very early. And for, you know, for 30 years, we were the only game in town. That was fun. All right. And 20 years ago, things as people started, you know, awareness and farmers markets and wall, you know, all this. And so, um, so now we're not uh, by any means the game that game in town. But so for the first time in half a century, we're actually rationing product. We don't have enough. We, we've got way more demand. I um, uh, did a post the other day. You know, the uh, pr- pandemic is the best marketing strategy we ever had for you guys. For, for us, for yeah. us. Okay. And so we're just, you know. We're, we're rationing here. And so now pe- our people are getting scared. And so there are farmers like us that are actually talking about starting kind of an insurance premium. Uh, you want to get on our business class list. So you always have a seat, pay us $500 a year in sh- uh, premium, and you're our top 10 percenter. So they, you know, they so would give you money crazy. so that yeah. they would have definite access to food definite, first. Definite access for food first. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? How much could you scale up your business? 
Oh, it's uh, it has limits, but our our ability to scale is only based on um, personnel. You know how many people and land base. And we we've, we've got to we've got to have enough land base to scale, and we need we need a, a bigger team. But no, I mean our principles. But but see, we don't scale. Let me let me explain it this way. There's there's a guy. There's a guy. Um, David Schaefer, and uh, he 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 does a cool thing. As you know, our country is now a repository for shipping containers. You know, metal shipping containers. We've got millions of them. You can buy them cheap, scrap metal, because China makes everything, ships it here, and then we don't ship anything back. But you know, microchips. <laughs> so they don't take very many shipping containers. So we're building up these mountains of shipping containers. So this guy has figured out how to take a shipping container and simply refurbish it into a ver- a small, um, inspectable poultry processing, mobile poultry processing facility. Mm. So I can call him, and, and for $100,000, he'll customize it to what I want, put a chassis under it, drive it to my place, put it on four pillars. It's not even a building, so there's no build- building permit required. Put it on four pillars. And I've got a little federal inspected processing facility that I can do, you know, 150,000 chickens a year. Okay. So for me, when you say, how do you scale up? For me, it's not, well, I'm going to, if we hit 150 and overrun the ability of this little facility, it's called Plant in a Box, P-I-B. And his his uh, his pot, his uh, blog is... Um, uh, thinking inside the box because <laughs> this, this thing is plant in a box. Um, so in, instead of if, if, if we had sales for over 150,000 chickens, well, then you don't you don't expand this and make it bigger. You duplicate it. So your expansion is by duplication, not by concentration and, and scale on site. Then what happens? There's a sweet spot here. There's a sweet spot. If you if you don't overrun your your ecology so we're going to set this thing you set this thing on a piece of, on a on farm so the acreage is enough to handle the processing water and you compost all the guts on site now you don't have to run a sewage treatment plant you don't have to truck your guts to a rendering plant they become fertilizer on site called this fertigation and and it's a sweet spot that the industry doesn't have. And so there's no reason why we can't produce a million chickens and you just have eight of these scattered, you know, five miles apart, six miles apart. And once you get them processed and they're in a bag, you can put them in a tractor trailer and ship them anywhere. Okay. That's not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is integrating the processing with the production. That's the bottleneck right now in our in our fragile system. And so if we can if we can do an integrative approach and and have a democratized decentralized approach then suddenly we have an ecological, humane, people-friendly, community-friendly, nutrient-friendly system. Has anybody ever come to you and said, "Hey, our community is kind of screwed up. We don't have a good food source here. Would you help us establish something like this?" Yeah, I've I've been. Um, Have you designed uh, these things for folks? 
not I mean not for a whole community like this. Um, it sounds like that but, would be a great thing though. Yeah, I mean, especially now when we're realizing that it's difficult when the the food supply chain goes down or something mm-hmm. goes wrong and it's difficult to get food to people. Wouldn't it be great to have? I mean, I've always said this that it would be great if you had like the neighborhood had like one large plot of land and everyone mm-hmm. in the neighborhood lived off that plot of land. Sure. Instead of like have a little mini Central Park in every neighborhood. Right, right. Um, you're talking my language. I mean, uh, the idea of, of uh, well, I mean, you're familiar with urban agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have food deserts, right? Food deserts is a big, big problem. But a lot of times food deserts are in pretty rundown parts of, of the city that have vacant lots. And um, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of productive capacity in these places. I was uh, – one of the interesting ones I was on was in St. Louis – and uh, these three young couples had come together, and they had um, they had purchased an old. It was an old um, crack house that the city bulldozed, and so there's this vacant lot. It was you know half an acre. It wasn't very big, um, half an acre. And these three couples, uh, they they got apartments nearby, like within you know two minutes walk, and it was in a pretty rundown area of the, of the city, a rundown neighborhood, and they just started farming in this in this half acre and told all the neighbors, bring us your food scraps. They got some chickens. They started making compost. They put up a little greenhouse. They put up a kitchen and um, very, very simple, poor boy, bootstrap, you know, nothing. And they quickly became a a whole community of whatever uh, place for kids to come because kids were mesmerized by the chickens. They had a worm bed, the plants growing, they cooked stuff. And I was there, you know, I was there with them for a couple of hours. And here come, here, here come kids down the sidewalk, you know, pulling a little red wagon with food scraps in it. And, and they're feeding the worm beds. And it's, it's fantastic. They were feeding like, you know, 30 families out of this old crack house foundation. That's amazing. And it was just wonderful. And they were doing it as a, as a gift to the inner city, you know, as a, as a gift uh, to the inner city. But I asked them, I said, so, so how much of St. Louis's food could be produced this way? They said, if you take out the dairy and the beef, you know, the, the, big, the big mega stuff, St. Louis could feed its entire city within the city limits this way. Wow. And that's true in Detroit. It's true in Baltimore. It might not be true in L.A., but the the but but here's the thing: we don't have to solve every single person's problem to start solving some. And and our problem is so many times I start down this path and somebody starts throwing at me the most extreme situation. And you know what? I don't have all the answers for the most extreme situation. You know the. The single mom of four minority in a food desert in whatever, okay? I don't have the answer to every single situation. But I'm looking at suburbia. I'm looking at at incredible things that people are doing and opportunities. And if we just did what we know, um, I mean, I ran into a lady in um, in, in Edmonton, uh, British Columbia, uh, Alberta. Uh, Alberta, yeah, thank you. And... Um, 
She was 50, single lady, living in a fifth floor um, condominium, just wanted to, wanted to farm in the worst way. She had no money, no land, nothing. And she just had this epiphany one day. She said, I know I have one friend that has a backyard. She went to this friend with a backyard. She said, um, would you mind if I grew up like a 10-foot by 10-foot garden in your back. I just want to grow something. Friend said, sure, sure, sure. So she gave her a little 10, 10 by 10 plot, started a garden. Well, the lady's neighbor saw the garden and she said, do you think your friend would put a garden in my backyard? And lady said, well, no, I'll ask. Well, sure. I met this lady 18 months after this initial conversation with her friend. She was farming 18 backyards, had a part-time employee, was a full-time farmer, her, her, all of her tools were on the side of her bicycle. She bicycled from spot to spot to spot with all of her tools. And her, she started a business called On Borrowed Ground ah. and Growing Food. So the thing is, is there creativity? Is there opportunity? Oh, it's up the wazoo. If we would become as interested in this as we are the latest dysfunction in the Kardashians <laughs> or, or, you know, the... the <laughs> Yeah, you know what I'm saying? The, the latest whatever. Yeah. And, and it, it's not that we don't have time for it. Not that we don't have money for it. If, if there's one really positive thing to come out of this pandemic, I hope that it's a restructuring of what's valuable in life. And if we can, if we can even grab a, a 30% bump in that value trajectory – it will have been the best thing that ever happened to That's us. That's a large bump. But yeah, if we can restructure what's valuable to us, it's very important. And, and as you're talking about earlier, what's I mean, these essential businesses, what what is essential and not essential? It's it's so arbitrary and strange and this is something that politicians really aren't supposed to have the power to dictate what we can and can't do in that way. And they're not doing it in a smart way. Like here's a perfect example. Liquor stores are an essential <laughs> business. You know what's not an essential business? Alcoholics Anonymous. So Alcoholics Anonymous right. are not allowed to have their meetings, but mm -hmm. liquor stores are open because they're essential. That is ass-backwards thinking. That doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, and in Virginia, I mean, yeah, we've got ours in Virginia as well. You know, they, they open the liquor stores and close the churches. Yeah, that's uh, another they, one. They, they, op they open Walmart and close the farmer's market. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, it's asinine. It, it is. It, it's absolutely asinine. And, uh, and, and, I would even argue that they don't have the constitutional authority to do that. I, Most I, I, would. I, I, Most I, would I, I examine it. That would be my argument. But, but boy, fear—you know, fear—fear fear spawns things that we can't even imagine. What is it like where you are in Virginia? Is are restaurants open? Is no, it, no, no. So we're uh, so on May fifteenth, we we entered what's called phase one, and so. Um, so churches are allowed to, to meet again. Um, not that the government could have ever taken that away, but anyway, that's the narrative. That's the narrative. Uh, churches can meet again. We're still at the 10-person um, rule for, for uh, gatherings. gatherings. But a church, as long as they're at 50% capacity, they're okay. Mm. Uh, so, so that's up and running. Uh, hairdressers are back to work. A lot of the, like the personal hygiene, barbers, hairdressers, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, small, very small scale, uh, 
kind of things like that are are, are back. Uh, but it's a it's a slow, you know, it's a very, very slow process. Yeah, it is. In some places, Texas is pretty wide open. Texas right. has restaurants, hotels, uh, everything's back up. Right. Uh, Phoenix is the same way. Yeah. Right, the right. Places and, are opening up comedy clubs again mm-hmm. at half capacity. Right, right. So, I mean, we're having our, we canceled our first two uh, farm tours. We do a, we do a, what we call the lunatic farm tour uh, at, at the farm. A uh, hundred people on hay wagons. Obviously, we can't social distance on hay wagons. You can't get people. Right. So we're having our first one May 30th. It sold out. Not a single person has complained. We've told them there won't be social distancing. You're on a hay wagon. If, if, you're, if you're uncomfortable, then you can walk the tour. And we don't drive fast. You know, we've got people on hay wagons. We're not, you know, we're not driving at road speed. So you can walk it if you want to. But our impression of the feedback we've gotten is just oh, relief. Finally, I can go somewhere. I can be with people. I can, you know. That's the plus side, right? We're going to appreciate what what it's like to yeah. to do stuff to be able to go outside to go to a restaurant to go to a public yes. gathering have a picnic yes that kind of stuff yes yes i think all of our of our historically normal social interactions are going to be much sweeter than they have been in the past because we're social beings we're not hermits a few of us are hermits but not very many most of us you know, uh, like to see people. And, and if there's one time when you want to be together, it's in hard times. Yes. Who wants to go through hard times alone? And when I see these World War II vets dying alone because their family can't be around them, you're, the guy, you know, he's dying. Who cares? <laughs> you know, if son and daughter and grandkids want to come and be around him i i, I just well the fear is that the, they'll get it and they'll give it to someone else and that right, someone right, right. else will wind up in terminal as well yeah. i understand one, one of our problems is that we haven't done controls um you know i i wish there had been one state that said we're not going to do anything so that there could be one control right uh but the problem is nobody's done a control so we so we really we really don't know well there's been places that have less restrictions than others and then also there's been countries that have less restrictions right. than others Sweden. yeah mm-hmm. so and you're getting it's it's really difficult to parse the information and right. and get a straight answer on it is. is this a good thing or a bad thing All, ultimately over the course of time particularly what you were talking about with the unemployment rate equaling you know, one percent equaling thirty thousand lives over the right. course of a year. Right. I mean, we really don't know what that number is going to look like here, and it could be absolutely devastating. It is. I mean, we already know that you know suicides are up, yeah. uh, child abuse is up, spousal abuse is up. We know that just mm. from police reports. Yeah. Yeah. So you know that that's serious. And there are so many demographics that we don't know, like like Sweden, for example, fifty fifty five percent of all households in Sweden are single, single person. They must be really um, unagreeable oh, oh, oh. people. That's crazy. Fifty-five percent. So, so, yeah, yeah, it's wow. over fifty percent. Just swingers or something. Yeah, in like. in um, in Italy, in Italy, it's uh, it's only I think eight, eighteen or twenty percent, something like that. So, um, so there's a lot of multi-generational households in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, Italy's a much older, older demographic, right. and. Uh, and more people in a household. Probably than, a lot more smoking too. 
Yes. Italy's, Pro- uh, oh, when yeah. I was there, it's ridiculous oh, yeah. how much they smoke. Uh, same thing in Spain. Spain, mm-hmm. a lot of, lot of smoking And they got Spain. hit hard as well, right? Yes, and they, they did. And you got to imagine that that's going to lead to a compromised immune system. Sure. So you've got all the people living together. You've got uh, a large percentage of folks that are older. And then you got the cigarettes and the no exercise. It's not a, I, the, the gyms that I found when I was in Italy, like, what in the fuck is this gym? <laughs> you know, if in a nice hotel, would have this pathetic gym. Yeah, yeah. This isn't anybody working out over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's true. That's true. And, and as, you know, so as we go forward with this thing, um, I, I, I look at this and say, well, let's 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 at least wipe ourselves off and say, okay, what can I learn from this? Right. What, what can we learn from this going forward? And um, culturally, obviously, we can learn. Well, we need to we need to decentralize and diversify our food processing system. I mean, for me, that's like number one. Um, and 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 then. For the for the average consumer, though, I mean that that's a that's a macro thing. But for the average consumer, what can you do to facilitate a secure food system and your own secure food system? And one one is to simply start stockpiling more food. I mean, have more food in the house. You don't have to go to the grocery store three times a week. Buy in bulk. Go to the go to the farmers market. Buy from a farmer. You can get you can get twenty pound bags of oatmeal. You know, you don't have to get a little, uh, you know, cup full of Quaker oats. You, you can get, you can get rolled crimped oats by the fifty-pound bag. It's it's, it's pennies on the dollar. I mean, this is how you save money. You buy, uh, and, and I mean, we talk about price. Interestingly, our our whole chicken price at Polyface is cheaper than boneless, skinless breast from Tyson at Walmart. So the way to save money is to get unprocessed. Mm. That's that's how you eat well. Okay, uh, you know the famous movie uh, Food Inc., the documentary Food Inc. You know, wonderful movie. But they they presented the same thing. Remember where that family went to the fast food place and they said they couldn't afford tomatoes. Well, a pound of our ground beef is cheaper than that um, burger, soft drink, and and massive fries that he got and there's probably more nutrition in a half a pound of our ground meat than that whole meal but you can buy two pounds of our ground meat for the price of that whole meal the the fact is that junk food is not cheap junk food's expensive i mean you start talking about nutrition uh i mean a, a snickers bar snickers bar is is twice as expensive per pound as as our grass finished world class ground beef Okay, so when you start looking at these kinds of things, you start realizing, oh, okay, so, so really, I just need to, I just need to adjust where my money's going, and how I'm spending. So, so spend, so, so spend on uh, bulk by bulk by unprocessed. Get in your kitchen, yes, um, and 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 you know, develop a a love for domestic culinary arts. Okay. <laughs> Um, and, and kitchens are a great place to teach your kids science, you know, fractions, a quarter teaspoon, a uh, great place to teach your kids. Um, so, so math, math, fractions and stuff, science, you know, what happens when you put baking soda with vinegar and all this stuff. I mean, you know, kitchen's a great first learning place. 
And what you're saying is great on paper. The problem is people are addicted to eating terrible foods. Yeah. And it's it's a real issue, particularly with uh, highly sweetened, highly processed foods that are the things they crave. Their, and also their gut biome. You were talking about uh, this doctor. That you know, what is him? Bush. Doctor Zach Bush. Zach Bush. Yeah, Doctor Zach and, Bush. And that he's a uh, a biome expert. I'm, I'm glad we brought this up as well. Yeah. Because that's an issue with people that have their bodies accustomed to eating this terrible food. Their biome is accustomed to that terrible food, so it's, it starts craving those Twinkies and and chips. Oh, listen, the food the food processing scientists. <laughs> They ain't dumb. No. You know, they know. They know what our, you know, what our our primitive, you know, hot buttons are. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, salty, sweetie, yep. uh I mean, boy, they they know exactly what it is. So, yeah, so Zach uh, Dr. Zach Bush has been actually developing um microbiome uh bolstering concoctions to try to diversify your microbiome. You know, one of the things that that farmers like me that that direct market to people, one of our concerns. I mean, I don't, I don't talk a lot about it, but one of our concerns is that our that our food, for example, our chicken, we don't immerse it in chlorine, you know, so it actually has, it, it's living food, um, and and sometimes people are so sterile in their microbiome that they actually have to eat a little bit of unprocessed, you know, a real food a little bit at a time to build it up. I mean, the other morning I was out in the garden uh, uh, picking asparagus and um, I had my knife and I was cutting it off. Of course, I love fresh, I mean, fresh garden picked, I mean, there's nothing like a cool morning and, and a big old fat asparagus, you know, an inch thick. And I just eat it fresh. It's got some soil on it. Eat the soil, you know, just Grandma used to say you're supposed to eat a half, eat a pound of dirt before you're 12, right? Remember? I mean, um, I had a different grandma. <laughs> had a different. <laughs> oh man! Um, but uh, you know, how do we develop immune systems in babies? We don't put them in plastic wrap bubble. Right. We put them around on the floor, and the next thing we know, they're they're you know gnawing on the dog toy, and they've got a dust bunny in their mouth, and Right. This is how you build an immune system. And kids kind of know it, or nature knows it at least. Nature knows that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Richard Louvre writes about this in uh, Nature Deficit Disorder, which is, of course, an iconic book um, about the importance of of touching nature and breathing in nature. I mean, just the 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 bacteria that exudes from vegetation and and the ecology of plants powerful thing you know yeah, and, and we're told they're, they're to cushions. wash things down as soon as you get them because they could have pesticides on them yeah you got to clean up all the garbage well, that, that, and tear that's, that's why you get, get coli yeah. from the spinach yeah. that's why you get food from people that don't use pesticides yeah um and and and, and you say well there's not enough of that produced well as you said um it, it would be wonderful if this broadcast went into every single household in the world, and tomorrow everybody said, we're going to do different. Well, I think a lot of people are trying to do different because of this pandemic. I mean, I would imagine the number of gardens has grown up oh, yes. substantially. Oh, yes. I know a lot of people have looked into hunting. Yes. I know, I know yes. that. And and edible, you know, uh, hunting, edible wild things. Mm-hmm. What can I eat? You know, right. dandelions, lamb's quarters, uh, mushrooms. mushrooms. Yep, yep, yep. So it's, it's a wonderful thing. So yes, uh, this is really um, this is really a good thing. And the whole, 
what we call the Homestead Arts. There's a there's a big conference that happens every year in, in the East, uh, and they're hoping that they can still have it. It's in October, the Homesteaders of America Conference. And and two weeks ago, they had 10,000 new email signups for their postings in one day. Mm. I mean, that gets your attention. That's huge. Um, and, and it's And it's people that are looking on how to – how to garden. I mean, the number of gardening questions, just like, um, and seeds, I mean, seed companies are out. All the seed companies basically did a, like a three or four day moratorium this spring, you know, cause they ran out. So this summer was going to be in short supply. Canning supplies are going to be short. Uh, mm. dehydrators, mm. I'm sure, you know, produce dehydrators are going to be hard to get in our area right now. You cannot get a freezer now until August. Everything's back ordered clear till the middle of August. Everybody snarfed up the freezers to be able to stockpile. Mm. So that was one of the things I was saying. You know, how do we how do we go forward? Well, you 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 do more for yourself. And in our book Beyond Beyond Labels, Scene and I in, end up the last couple chapters are about moving to a place where you actually are producing some of your own food, a backyard flock of chickens. A little, you know, garden, uh, a little herb garden, you know, and we have the technology now. Mother Earth News Magazine, I mean, they've they've led the led this thing forever. Um, and you go to a Mother Earth News fair, and um, we were going to have the first one on a farm this year at our place, expecting ten thousand people, and we had to cancel. It was in July, so it's rolled over now to next year, but. Um, there's every kind of like, you know, like patio tube herb garden with little pockets in it, you know, and you, you, you grow all of your own herbs, uh, beehives on your house roof. Um, there's so much, there's so much that you can do. And so, uh, I, I encourage people to, to jump in and just caress the mystery of life. And it's, it's good for your nutrition. It's good for your soul. It's good for your spirit. In a time where everybody's concerned about death, surround yourself with something that's growing. It's a great thing, you know. I think that's a great point and maybe a great way to end this. Joel, thank great. you very much. I really appreciate you and I appreciate your message. And, and uh, it's just you really epitomize the best example of that sort of regenerative farming. And, and I, I really wish it would be more widespread. Thank you, Joe. Thank well, you. With your help, it will be. My pleasure. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody.